Good morning, everybody. So Pastor Chris uh, is out this week. He'll be back here uh, next week. The other day, uh, I was working on, I spent some time reconciling my accounts. Um, for you uh, younger people, you probably don't even know what this term means, but balancing my checkbook. Uh, and I spent a little time doing that, and uh, the unfortunate reality is that there was a significant gap between what looked to be in my account and what the outstanding uh, payments and debts were that uh, were going to come through. Uh, I used to live that way where, hey, it says I have money, right? And then, <laughs> then you wonder what those minus signs are when, when those come in. But that's what reconciliation is, right? Is there's a gap between uh, what is true and what is outstanding or what you see and what's outstanding. Uh, we probably all have re uh, relationships that need reconciliation, right? Maybe it's a, a marriage that's split. Maybe it's a, a relative that you, uh, you, know, you guys just can't be around each other. Uh, you can't talk politics or whatever. Um, you know, there's, there's always a, a division between you, and, and there needs to be some reconciliation. Um, you know, there's a gap between you and that person. So the last couple messages, Paul has been uh, defining the gospel, right? He's been talking about what it is we believe, um, what the gospel does, why he devoted his life to it, and at the core of the gospel message, the message of Jesus, is this idea of reconciliation, right? There's a gap that needs to be bridged. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today, uh, but before we do, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll dive right into the Word. Okay? Lord, we thank you this morning for uh, just giving us this opportunity to gather together. Uh, we get to sing um, beautiful songs of praise and worship, we get to fellowship, and shake hands and hug and all of that. Those are all great things, but Lord, we thank you uh, most of all for your blood, that you died for us and made a way that we can know you. And part of how we can know you is, is through your word. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us understand it today and so we can leave here knowing you better than when we arrived. Lord, we pray for your blessing on the message and on the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to backtrack just a couple verses to give ourselves a little context. Uh, Pastor Chris covered some of this last week, but 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9 is where we're going to pick up. Paul says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, to Jesus. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so if, if you're a Christian... Paul says, we will all stand at the Bema seat. This is the, the, that's the judgment seat of Christ. It's the seat where, where Jesus get, kind of hands out the rewards, right? You'll be judged for what you did in your body. Not for your sins, because that's a different judgment. Uh, if you place your faith in Jesus, the Bible tells us that your sin has been judged and paid for on the cross. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. 
Jesus says in John chapter 5 that whenever, whoever believes has passed from death into life and will not face judgment. So this is a different type of judgment. And he's going to judge us for what we did in the body, whether good or bad. What you did with your leased meat wagon. Okay? Your body is, uh, when you buy a car, you own it. When you lease a car, you have to give an account for the condition of it, of it and what you've done with it when you return it. And the uh, Bible tells us that you've been bought with a price, that your body is not your own. This thing is a, it's a lease. It's a loaner. And uh, I'm going to have some explaining to do with mine. I know <laughs> you're going to be like, there are a lot of dents and dimples in this thing that weren't there originally. But no, this is about how did you use your talents, as Kevin was talking about earlier. Uh, what did you do with the opportunities that I gave you? Because the Bible tells us that he placed you in a specific place, specific time. Uh, the, he determined the, the limitations of your habitation. He determined where you would be and when you would be and what family you'd be born into to give you the best opportunity to be the best you. And so what did you do with all of that? Did you do a good job or a bad job? And so earlier in the book, Paul, he likened our works because that's what we're talking about here. What, did, what were the works you did as a believer? He likened our wor works to um, wood, hay, and stubble, right? Th the things that I did for my own glory, the things I did to be seen, the things I did to impress people or to be a people pleaser, uh, and gold, silver, and precious stones. These are the things that I did with the right motive, the things that, that last. So he basically he, he says there are things that you do that will burn up when they're purified by fire. When they pass through fire, there's nothing left. And fire is just uh, the symbolism that the Bible uses most often for, for judgment, right? When these things are judged, they pass through judgment and there's nothing good left over. This is the stuff that uh, you got a pat on the back here on earth and that was your reward. That's all you get. Uh, but the things that you did for him that maybe no one patted you on the back for, there's a reward. Things, and you notice like he, he, he calls them you know, gold, silver, precious stones, all things that are found under the surface. And then wood, hay, and stubble, all things that are on the surface. And that's really what it's about. Right? It's motivation and faithfulness versus you know, public... Uh, showing off and people pleasing and all of that. So did you do things, uh, you know, what, what was going on under the surface versus the surface? So with all that in mind, he's got this train of thought going, right? Surface versus, you know, deeper. Deeper versus surface. Verse 11, he says, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, or the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So the, the fear of the Lord or the terror of the Lord, this is not, um, you know, screaming, oh my gosh, it's a monster terror, right? It's, it's awesome reverence. It's the, it's the fear that we have when we look at the, you know, you look at huge waves on the ocean, right? If I'm on shore, I'm not terri terrified that they're going to get me but I am not in a hurry to go out and try to swim in those things either, right? They're, they're awesome, and they're terrifying. 
And so the fear of the Lord is that awesome reverence of who he is, a, an understanding of just how big he really is. So this terror, this fear, this is something that you're supposed to see uh, between parents and their children. And again, they sh- your kids shouldn't be terrified of you in the way we think of that word. But um, there should be some respect, right? There should be uh, a reverence. And everyone's kids act up. Uh, that's just how it is. But the, the people who have this type of relationship, are the, those are the ones that can, when their kid runs toward the road, they can say, stop, and they stop. And that's why that relationship is supposed to be that way. Because if I yell stop and you don't stop, you run out in the road and terrible things happen. Right? And the Bible tells us over and over that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. It's the beginning of walking in the life that he has for us. Because he wants what's best for us. Anyway, I could spend a lot of time on that. But, you know, kids that aren't taught that, they won't stop when, when they're told to stop. And, and it's a problem. So Paul says it should always be on our minds, right? We should always have this, this reverence for God and who he is and how powerful he is. Uh, knowing that we're going to stand before him someday and be called on the carpet for how we lived our lives, how we used the blessings that he gave us. And it should affect how we do things. Now, don't, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying you're going to stand before him and hopefully give a good enough account that he'll let you into heaven. That's not how that works. Right? This, is, this is a different judgment. This is, okay, you're saved, now what did you do after that? And Paul says, this is what drives me, right? living for heaven. It, it's manifest to God. In other words, he knows what my motivations are. And I trust and understand, you know, he knows that I trust uh, him. And I'm hoping that you understand that I always have eternity in mind, right? That, that is my motivation. That's why I do what I do. Because remember, uh, we've talked about this a few times throughout this study. There were some people... Uh, you know, going behind Paul and, and criticizing him and, and, you know, casting doubt on whether he was even a real apostle and what were his motives. And he says, I hope you understand, and I know God understands, that what I do, I do for him. Verse 12, he says, for we do not commend ourselves again to you. He says, I'm not trying to persuade you, I, but, I give it, uh, but give you an opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. So I'm telling you this so you know my heart and my motives for what I do. And when someone comes along uh, who's more motivated by the surface stuff, by the outward appearance, and criticizes and questions what I've said and done, just, just know my heart here, and then you decide for yourself. Bottom line, you know, God wants you concerned with the inside, and that shouldn't be a new idea to us. We see it in the Old Testament when we're talking about Saul versus David. And in the New Testament, Jesus echoes it. In Matthew 23, verse 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. What's that next word? Hypocrites. You know, I I often run into people that, you know, they say, well, I I can't go to church because of all the hypocrites. And I'm like, you're in good company because 
Jesus didn't like hypocrisy either. He's the one that actually coined that phrase because that word means actor, and he used it in a different way. Uh, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus knew their hearts. And so for many of us, it's hard to reconcile when someone's outside doesn't align with what they say is on the inside, right? The, the person who tries to preach Jesus but lives hate, right, or lives a lie or lives hypocrisy. That's a hard thing to reconcile. There's a gap between the two, and there shouldn't be. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 13 says, uh, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Beside ourselves. Your Bible may say crazy. Some of the newer translations render it that way. And that's a good, good enough translation. That term being beside ourselves, um, at its core, it literally means that. right? The idea was like you see someone walking down the street and they're like, I don't know, I, what do you think? And they're talking to themselves. right? They're, they're so out of their mind that they're a part of them is beside themselves. And he says, you can call me crazy, uh, and if I'm crazy, I'm crazy for God. Uh, and Paul was accused of this multiple times. He's ac accused of being out of his mind for facing mobs, for walking back into cities that had just stoned him. Jesus was accused of the same things. Because it's crazy to, to go up to someone who hates you and tell them that Jesus loves them. And it's bonkers to quit your job and move to another country to be a missionary. Uh, it's pretty wacko to, to put yourself in harm's way in order to reach out to someone who you don't even know. And people do it. But most of us are so bogged down by the, the drudgery of the day-to-day -day that when we see real passion in someone, it seems crazy. When you see someone who's really just on fire for God, you're like, whoa, <laughs> pump the brakes. It's too early for that stuff, right? It's, it's, it, we're at early service. We, you know, settle down. <laughs> Sometimes passion uh, gets mistaken for, for uh, well, for having the wrong motives, right? Oh, they're just... They're acting that way to, to show off or to make you look bad. Or maybe they're madly in love with their Savior and they care about what they're saying and doing. Verse 14, Paul says this. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ, that's what motivates me. He says, I can't help but act the way I act because of the love he has for me. Now listen, if you love people, and you serve people because you love people, that's awesome. Uh, that's nice until it's not. Until you encounter people who throw it back in your face, who, who disappoint you, uh, who hurt you, who lie about you, and, and, and make you question why you started serving this person in the first place. And so for many of us, we've, 
we've experienced that. If you serve people because it feels good, it feels good to make a difference. It feels good to, to feed the hungry. It feels good to uh, reach out to people. It feels good to help people, to give them a hand. Until it doesn't. Until it doesn't fulfill you. Jesus loves me and saved me from hell. That's my motivation, is what Paul says, right? I don't do this just because I'm such a good guy and love you. I do it because Jesus loves me, and he loves you, so therefore I love you, right? Uh, I'm trying to see you differently. I'm trying to see you the way Jesus sees you. Verse 14, we'll read it again. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. I have no other choice. Because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer for themselves, or those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. C.S. Lewis uh, had this to say. He says, it costs God nothing, so far as we know, to create nice things. But to convert rebellious wills cost him crucifixions. To change hearts cost him everything. Christ died our death, is what the picture Paul's painting here, uh, for us that we might live life for him. He died our death for us so we could live his life for him, live our lives for him. And so Paul, Paul echoes this over and over in his other letters, right? In Galatians 2, verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. He says, this isn't about my personality and my likes and dislikes. I'm living for something bigger. In 1 Corinthians 6, Verse 19, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought for a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Again, you're leasing your meat wagon, right? This thing is temporary. So Jesus died for me, I will live for him. That's the concept. We'll go on. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. He says, so because of all that, we regard no one according to the flesh. Right? God, God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. I'm not just going to you know, go to quick snap judgments of people anymore. That, that's a tough one to fight against. Because like it or not, no matter how... Um, forward-thinking you think you are. Or, uh, we all have people, people groups, that we have a prejudice against, right? That there is, we need reconciliation because I automatically dislike people with that personality. I automatically am cautious of people of that race, of people of that nationality, of people who vote that way. Um, we all have these biases within us that need reconciliation because Paul says none of that affects how I share the gospel with someone, how I live out this life in Christ. 
So see people as God sees them, as, as an eternal being that the king of the universe loves so much that he was willing to die for. That's really hard when, uh, when they're living up to the stereotype you've painted in your mind, right? This person's personality rubs me wrong, and look at that, there it goes, doing the thing I thought they would do. But Paul says, I see people no longer that way. I see them not for who they are, but who they could be. But he mentions something kind of strange here. He says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Before his conversion, Paul apparently knew Jesus somehow. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee, and maybe he knew him personally. Maybe he had talked with him. Maybe not. We're not told that was in the scripture, but he somehow knew of Jesus. He had probably heard of Jesus around Jerusalem. He probably heard him teach. He considered this Jesus to be a teacher, a leader of a new sect, uh, and an opponent. And then something changed, right, when he encountered the resurrected Jesus. And today, some people know Jesus as a good teacher, a, uh, someone who inspired holidays. Right? Maybe, you, maybe you think of him as a fictional character, a mythological character, or whatever the History Channel has to say about him this week. Maybe that paints your picture of Jesus. Great numbers of people followed Jesus before his crucifixion. There were very few there after, right? They all deserted him. But Paul says, I no longer know him that way. Uh, now I have a different relationship with him. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us this is what happens. Chapter 16, verse 17, or verse 7, he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I'm leaving. For if I do not leave, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The helper is another name for the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going back to heaven. The Holy Spirit is coming to live inside you. Now I don't just know about him. I know him because his spirit lives in me is what Paul's getting at. It. It's different because I'm different. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He's talking about this idea of regeneration. Uh, when we come to Jesus by faith, we're not just forgiven. We're, we're changed into a new creation. That doesn't mean we no longer have any fleshly desires, because I've heard people say that, right? Like, you know, back then when I was a sinner, and I'm like, well, what are you, what are you now? Are you dead? Because that's, <laughs> that's the only option. Uh, you still have a sin nature after this new creation. And you're still wearing flesh, and it's going to be a problem until you're not wearing flesh. But we're changed and being changed, right? My destination has changed and along the way, he's going to change me day by day. Verse 18, he says, Now all things are of God who has, here's the word we were talking about earlier, has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Believers, if you've trusted Jesus, you should have a ministry of reconciliation. The Bible tells us, Blessed 
are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers, just the peacemakers, the people who go out of their way to mend and heal relationships, including the broken relationship between the lost and dying world and a loving God. Verse 19, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation, the word literally just means the end of estrangement or the, or the, the closing of a gap, right? The end of estrangement. We talk, sometimes you'll hear people say, you know, uh, he needs to be made right with God. Right? That's it's a weird English phrase, but it's, uh, it's fairly accurate. That's, we have a wrong relationship with God, and we need a right relationship. We need reconciliation. There's this gap between us because there's a debt that's owed. Anybody who's ever loaned money to someone, you know what it's like, right? Even when you don't even care about the money anymore, it's still weird whenever you're around each other because there's this unspoken wedge between you. I've had it a couple times where that went on and I totally forgot and I just thought this person's just weird around me now and then they finally bring it up and I'm like I you could have just gone to your grave and not paid me this debt because I didn't know you know um, that's the joy of having ADHD but uh, but it's th this gap between us because there's a debt owed uh, and Jesus takes our debts and he paid them right he took all of our debts paid them on the cross of Calvary. And with his dying breath, right, he said, to telestize, it's, it is finished. The debt is paid in full. And so Paul says, now he has given us this ministry of reconciliation. We preach Christ to those who are estranged, to people who have a broken relationship, who, who the debt that they have accumulated has driven them far from God. And we preach this word to bring them near to God, to be changed, to become something new. Verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In the next verse, he gives what I consider to be the gospel in a nutshell. There's this theological term we throw around substitutionary atonement right and all that is is that something else or someone else made atonement or you know paid a debt on your behalf and he, paul says it this way verse 21 for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of god in him so on the cross, God the Father treated Jesus as if he were guilty of every sin for the whole world. You know that weird moment that it, when you read it, you're like, what's going on here when Jesus says, why have you forsaken me, right? Because Jesus is experiencing the full estrangement that sin brings, right? For the first time, I am, there's a wedge between us. I, I experiencing what man should experience because of their sin. He received that treatment on our behalf. And because Jesus did that, now when God looks at you, if you've trusted him for eternal life, now when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees that blood applied to you. 
We're going to read two more verses here. Well, maybe three. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1. He says, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He says, Look, I've told you what matters. This is the gospel, that he who knew no sin died for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. So I'm pleading with you, don't hear that and treat it as if it doesn't matter or to treat it lightly. Don't receive it in vain, in an empty way. And so maybe you've heard this all before, right? You're like, yeah, 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 new creation, got it. Uh, But have you ever actually responded to it? Because I I talk to people on a regular basis who have grown up in church or who have been in church for a long time, and then one day it finally clicks, and they realize, oh, I've never actually believed. Or I never realized that, yeah, I I remember one gal in particular, I had shared a testimony, uh, uh, because like I said, I've got some dents in in my wagon, and... uh, and she said, you know, I wish I was like you and had a story to tell, but I've just never really sinned. And I'm like, oh, wow, Mother Mary, I didn't realize that. Uh, but she was just convinced that, like, I've just always been good. And I'm like, I don't think you've understood. I think you're missing something. Because even the best among us is not good enough. I, I remember uh, Pastor Scott, uh, who's over in Albion now, he used to use this illustration that it's like God put this standard of here's a hoop, and it's up here in heaven. And we get the guy who can jump the highest. You know, we send whoever, LeBron or Michael Jordan or somebody like that, and they can jump way higher than me. And God's still like, yeah, that's not, not even close. Right? So he says, don't receive this grace of God in vain. Don't, don't think it's, oh, this is a message for other people. Because this isn't just another self-help, feel-good, motivational talk. Right? This is the reason for all of it. The reason you were put in, the family you were put in, in the time you were put in, in the country you were put in, to give you the best chance to respond to the gospel. Verse 2, he says, for he says... At the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Listen, we're going to close here in a second, but I just want to put it this way. You are an eternal being. You have this spirit inside of you that will be somewhere forever. And to put it bluntly, and I'm not a fan of fear tactics, but hell is hot, and forever is a long time. And you you have a relationship in your life that's broken, and it needs reconciliation. Uh, But the most important one is the broken relationship between you and your creator. Without reconciliation, without payment being made in full and applied to your account, You'll spend eternity separated, estranged, not reconciled with the one who loved you the most. And the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus put it simply in John 3, verse 16. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The word believe just means to trust. You see him for who he is and trust he can do what he says he can do. And if you do that, you've been reconciled. You've changed your new creation. Would you bow your heads for a moment? I'm going to pray for you. Lord, we thank you uh, for giving us this time. There's some of us here that we know that we have hurting, broken relationships in our life that, uh, that need reconciliation. We pray that you would give us the courage to do so, the, the, uh, the Christ-likeness to be able to forgive that, that offense that we thought we never could. God, I'm also praying for everyone listening here that hasn't made this decision yet, hasn't trusted you for eternal life, that they would see that the truth of the gospel is simple, that you love them so much that if they were the only person ever born, you still would have been willing to die for their sin so that they could live with you for eternity. Lord, we pray that they would make that decision today, put their faith in you, and be changed. Above all, Lord, we just pray that the message of the gospel will go out and change hearts, change lives, change our city, change our country, change our world. And Lord, we pray that you come and come quickly. And everyone said, amen. All right, ready?